0: iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store.
1: All right. Hello. Thank you very much for coming, everybody. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, tonight we have a very special event, as you can see. Please, without further ado, please welcome Jim Ladd from KLOS, who will be moderating tonight's event.
2: How you doing, everybody? Thanks for coming out. Uh, I am Jim, and uh, I'm from 95.5 KLOS, and we're here uh, to talk about this extraordinary new film, When You're Strange. It's a documentary about The Doors. It'll be in theaters uh, April the 9th. I got to see it on Tuesday, and I don't think you could find a more hardcore Doors fan than myself. I was blown away by the film, and I even learned some things about The Doors I didn't know, and I've been playing them for... uh, Forever. well ladies and gentlemen I want to bring out now the extraordinary drummer for the Doors Mr. John Densmore and the director of the film Tom DiCillo please give him a big hand How you doing, guys?
0: Oh, good, Jim.
2: Oh, Yo. Dear God.
0: Just had a double espresso.
2: Hello. So welcome to uh, Apple in Santa Monica. Thank you, Jim. We got a mic for you.
1: Uh, Jim, before we start, I have an important announcement to make. Um, as you all know, Jim Morrison broke on through to the other side many years ago. Well, he's back. We're doing a reunion tour and recording another album on Elektra. Oh, wonderful. April Fool.
2: Oh, jeez. This <laughs> is going to be a long afternoon, so bear with me. Um, John, we know what you did. You uh, played drums with the doors and made musical history and what do you think about this film? I'm
1: pleasantly very surprised and pleased because I know all the footage, practically every frame and uh, somehow this guy to my left took this stuff and wrote a narrative and there's some new magic in there. You Amen. Know? It's got depth or something.
2: It's got a lot of love for this band, too. You can tell that Tom was, wanted this to be right just by the feel of the film. Tom, uh, let me give some of your film credits here. You uh, uh, did a, a movie called Johnny Suede, Living in Oblivion, Double Whammy, and Delirious. How did you come to this project?
0: Uh, believe it or not, I uh, directed an episode of Law & Order uh, to make some money and to pay the, pay the rent. And uh, it turned out fairly well, and I was invited to do a number of them. And one day I got a phone call from Peter Jankowski at Wolf Films asking me if I was interested in doing a documentary about The Doors. And I said yes immediately. I didn't even know what it was. Uh, They didn't mention any money. Uh, They didn't mention anything. And I said yes. So that's how I got involved. Were you a
2: long time Doors fan?
0: I was. I have to say, though, that my appreciation of The Doors music intensified the more I learned about them at this stage of my life. I was, I was a fan as a kid, but, you know, as I learned more about music, my appreciation of what the Doors accomplished and what they created uh, really developed, and that came from this movie, from, from doing the research on this film.
2: Well, I saw the movie on Tuesday, and I was riveted. I just thought you'd really done it, and I, was, uh, I went in skeptical, you know, don't mess with this. Don't screw it up. And you certainly did uh, a great job on it, man.
0: Well, I, Jim, if I could just say something, man. You know, you just said something that really uh, means a lot to me. When you said that there's there's obvious love uh, for this group in in in, in this movie, and uh, it wasn't until you said that that I actually realized that 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 you know how much that's true, and uh, I have a. Not only an affection, but an intense admiration for what uh, these four guys, all four of them, accomplished. And, and it's an amazing accomplishment. I think uh, it's the hardest thing in the world to create something original. Uh, most people claim that they do. Most of the time the world applauds stuff that is completely unoriginal. Right? In this case, the world recognized something that was original. And
1: Let me add to that. In the front row here, we have our genius recording engineer from a long time ago, and he's still with us, Bruce Botnick. And the man who, um, he was the only guy who heard something that no one else did, Jack Holzman from Electra, who signed our band.
0: Why don't you stand up?
2: Wow. Jack Jack Holzman,
0: Absolutely. Holtzman. Jack Holzman, Bruce Botnick, and Bruce, Bruce Botnick.
2: Yeah. Wow, oh, pleasure to have you here, sir. Thank you for having the good sense to, even though John was in the band to, you know, sign them.
1: Took four, took four visits. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, you you uh, changed a lot of people's lives by making that decision. Thank you very much. This is a great guy right here. Um, a lot of this footage. Looks like it was shot yesterday. I was stunned at uh, even the opening shots where Jim is in the car. It looked like you'd you'd filmed this last week. How how did that
0: come about? Well, that shot in particular, I'm glad you mentioned that, Jim. Uh, Jim Morrison made a film in 1969 called Highway, H-W-Y. He was very interested in, in filmmaking. He put his own money into it, and he wrote it and acted in this, you know, very personal 50-minute film. Uh, we had access to a print of it that was really deteriorated and bleached out. And, but still, these images of Jim walking through the desert, I knew, you know, were going to be in this film somewhere. But it wasn't until literally about a week before we, we committed to a print that we somehow got access. And John, I think, knows some, some details about this that I don't. But uh, we got access to the original 35-millimeter negative. Of this, of this movie that was shot in 1969 this stuff looks so great that there is a misperception that it is staged and it, it blows my mind I thought that that critics and journalists would say wow look at this this is amazing let's help people understand where it came from uh, and so you know I decided to leave it as pure as possible some people suggested that I deteriorate the image kind of screw it up to make it look like the rest of the film and I, I said it's not, you know I don't want to do that
2: No, I think it's very powerful that you didn't do that.
0: There there was a a
1: journalist uh, when we screened Sundance, and he left in the first couple minutes because he thought we had cast an actor because Jim has a beard. It's not a reality TV show. It's the
2: real deal. Yeah, and you get that feeling. That's a good, good point because you get the feeling that, oh, my God, this is something... What's going on here? And you've got a lot of questions going on in your mind. And then the more you watch it, the film just sucks you into it.
1: Uh, Jim, I want to ask you a question. In that scene, it's my favorite scene in the movie, uh, Jim's driving his car, he turns on the radio, and some last real DJ says that he's died. He, he learns of his own death. Well, familiar voice.
2: Well, I was uh, honored to be asked to do it and I was pretty stunned when they showed me what they wanted me to say in juxtaposition to Jim Morrison listening to this announcement and I thought well that's just too surreal, it's too good, I gotta do this.
1: And that's
0: that's Tom DeChillo's brilliant idea.
2: Thanks. It was really, really a powerful moment for me to be able to do that.
0: Did you, uh, let me ask you a question, did you actually announce anything when Jim
2: died? Do you remember what what you said? Oh yeah. I was um, I think when I got the news I was visiting my parents and then I came home the next day and we did, if I recall, three days straight of The Doors music on my show. So, and I think with the station I was at, did uh, 24 hours and then um, I did it for the next three days until I think they announced the burial. Um, John, let me ask you, how did this, watching this film, working on the film, how did this affect you personally?
1: Oh, um, I didn't work on it that much. I mean, Tom did a rough cut, and then Ray and I and Robbie uh, saw several screenings and kind of gave notes. Watching it is like some crazy, beautiful dream I had years ago that I like revisiting every night.
2: Interesting, interesting. Um, The film is narrated by Johnny Depp, and man, I will tell you, this guy nailed it. it, it every note, every word of this film, uh, I just thought he did a great job. How'd you get him?
0: He was my first choice, Jim. Uh, when we first attempted to you know, speak to him about this, it, it was difficult because nobody really knew about the film. We hadn't finished it. But since I decided to only use the, the original footage, all this you know, stuff that, that was shot between 66 and, and 71... It placed a tremendous uh, importance on the narration, the written narration, and who was actually going to do it. But I, I, knew that, that I didn't want some, some, just, some disembodied voice doing this. And that whoever was going to be speaking these words, it was crucial that you, you believed that they believed what they were saying, that you know they had an emotional commitment to, to what they were doing, and. My, my instinct about Johnny was correct. He's, he's, he's a very intimate and intelligent actor. Um, he made a, a, a request. He said, I'd like to do this, and the way I'd like to do it is just leave me alone. And so we said, fine. And he went somewhere. We still don't know where. Uh, and he spent about four days just recording this stuff and sent it to me. Now, the, the amazing thing about it was that he would do a line and then do it five more times, do it, do it again, and he would uh, affect the rhythm, affect the emphasis on a word. He put an, in, an enormous amount of himself uh, in, in this film, and I have to tell you, I agree with you. Uh, he's like, a, a, to me, he's like a, another, you know, the other character in the film. He's, he's in the movie.
2: That's a real good way to put it because he, he doesn't um, overshadow it, but he, I'll, I'll help you there. I'll go, go right ahead.
1: He's an icon. He's telling a story about an icon. And he knows who he is, so he doesn't... His ego is not in the reading. He's just kind of quiet and very soulful. And so I'm real happy to have the um, Mad Hatter... Um, Hold your hand if you go to this movie and you can take a ride on the Doors road trip and he will feed your head with our songs.
2: Amen. That's a great way to put it. Feed your head with the songs. Tell us about the writing process. Were you involved with that? No. Tell us about the writing process.
1: Wait a minute. Let me say something about that. That Tom wanted it to be a narrative and not have a sixty-year-old guy like me and a couple others blah-blahing about the past i think is really smart okay go
0: ahead well i i didn't come to that decision right away jim when when they uh... asked me to do this one of the first things they said to me was what's your concept and that was before they gave me the job and and i said well listen guys if you don't mind i wouldn't mind seeing a little material before you ask me to give you a concept and it actually became a little contentious because, uh, I, I, you know, there's like hours and hours and hours of this stuff, uh, you know, this original footage, and they said, yeah, okay, we want you to see it, but what's your concept? Finally, uh, I flew out to L.A. and just sat in an editing room for about three weeks, just looking at this material, and as you said, the first thing that struck me was that it looked like it could have been shot yesterday. It it wasn't this sort of Gooey nostalgic uh, images of the 60s or 70s that, that have you know somehow permeated our culture. This was the real thing, you know. A a, a three second shot of John really being John it was it has such a power and intensity. I said, man, if I could use this material and try to just tell the story this way, it might allow the audience to to perceive the doors. As if they were just happening now, you know very few people got, got that opportunity i, I, I didn 't
2: so yeah, he brought up a good point that it wasn 't this gooey kind of see, usually when people do things about the 60s, they get it wrong either they portray, uh, they portray everybody as drug addicts or dumb or and it was quite the opposite. these are college educated men they were very smart, they knew what they wanted and you 've got that to come out in the in the film
0: well I happen John, I certainly please step in here, but I happen to believe that that there was a moment uh, in this country that that what was happening was was probably one of the most powerful things that 's ever happened in this country, and yeah. it, it existed in its purity for for a moment, and it was real and it, it affected me, and I think it affected a lot of people uh, it wasn 't the bullshit, it was the real thing, which was you know. There, there is the possibility of change, of, of looking out at what you see and saying to the authorities, you know what, just because you're an authority, go fuck yourself. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't believe that. Uh, and and, and then, you, then you have these guys who I think were a little bit ahead of that. And I think people were kind of following them and, and, and they didn't even know it because you guys started out. I mean, w- did you ever consider yourself hippies? I, I still am, it's good. <laughs>
1: but I have deep pockets now. It's good, but you um, know what I
0: mean by the the hippie thing.
1: Okay. Well, the doors were the shadow side of peace and love. We were uh, the Jungian reflection of an undeclared war in Vietnam, maybe. So um, I don't know. What's
2: the question? Well, I'll, you know when you. <laughs> We're when you li- listen to some of the songs, like, for example, uh, Ship of Fools, there's a comment on what was going on. Peace Frog, Blood in the Streets in the Town of Chicago. Um, this happened uh, after Dr. King and JFK and the Democratic National Convention.
1: Yeah, well, as, as uh, Jim says in Tom's film, you can't, an artist can't help but reflect the Times. And, and, and that's another thing I like about this film. You do get a pretty good feeling of the politics of the era. And uh, that's important.
2: So, aside from telling the story of the doors, was there a particular mission to get across the feeling of the Times, for example, as John was saying?
0: That, that to kind of deflate that myth and to, to, to shine a little bit of a light on what was that moment of purity, that was one goal. The other goal was to do the same thing with the band. Uh, So much has been written and said and and gone into folklore almost about, about these guys. And I have to confess that to me a lot of it was bullshit. And I wanted to just see if I could present something about The Doors that was truthful that that acknowledged what they accomplished, but did not romanticize them didn 't mythologize them, uh, in fact showed them in, in all of their complexity the fact that that it took four of them to make this music. It really took four, and you know uh,
1: it, yeah, it pleases me to see Jim in the early days on the Santa Monica pier smiling and laughing and, and, and that 's how it was, and we drove around in my v w bug and talked about making it. And uh, and then the tragedy came. But to see that whole arc, that's good.
2: See, that's what I appreciated. And, and I don't know if we want to bring up the other film, but the other film, although I thought Val Kilmer was very good and, and uh, you know, did a brilliant performance, it kind of went from let's start a band to suddenly everything is about drinking and debauchery. Well, wait a minute, where was the stuff about them writing the songs and him being a poet and John with his vision and Ray and Robbie with their vision? This film shows that. This film shows that this is a band that had a vision and went out with a mission and cared about what they did. Um, Well, I'll
0: just address that for one quick second, Jim. I don't think that the only thing that necessarily makes something interesting about the band is that they were self-destructive, that there was that element of self-destruction in Jim. Um, you know, and I think there's a, there, it's mo- much more complex than that, you know, what was going on in the band and what was motivating Jim, what, what, his, what his demons were. I think uh, one of my favorite shots in the film is when he's dancing in the desert with these kids that he just meets. Yeah. <laughs> you know, That's you, a- you look at his face yeah. and there's no question in your mind that he's there with them.
2: He's not acting. He's, like, really dancing with these kids. I I like the the thing where the woman gets hit with the chair, and then they're (laughs) backstage, and he's trying to dab the blood off of her and make sure she's okay and all of that. I thought that was a real interesting insight into Jim Morrison's. Let me just...
1: He had a very sweet
0: side. Did he? Yeah, you should know, though, that uh, Jim had an idea very early on to have this classmate of his, Paul Ferrara, Follow them around with with a camera he was a a, a classmate of his at, at u uh, c l a right so much of this footage was shot by Paul Ferrara, who did an amazing job in which you know we wouldn't even have a movie if he if he didn't
2: shoot it um John, I want you to tell tell us about uh, the door's ethic in regards to the your music because you guys are having a great time and you're being rock stars, but there was a real ethic about being good musicians amidst all of the craziness surrounding the Doors, wasn't
1: there? I don't know, Jim. (laughs) An ethic. Hmm. Um, Rock stars. Uh, There was no energy drink. Uh, We we didn't... uh,
0: (laughs) No no Doors video game? That was
1: not our concept. It was uh, to say something, and it would be great to pay the rent. And, you know get a lot of helium in our head from fame, but um, ethic. Well, okay, the last line of Tom's movie is,
0: what is it? As of this date, none of the door songs <laughs> have been
2: used in a car commercial.
1: <laughs> but up, All
2: right. Amen. <laughs> and uh, we have this man to thank for that. We have this man I to agree. thank.
0: Well, and the other guy too.
2: Yeah, and the other guy too. That's right. That's right.
1: I'm not. I, I'm not. Hey, I'm not a new band trying to pay the rent. Do what you got to do. Maybe some music th- there isn't a price for.
2: Let's talk about that seriously here for a moment, because you went through an extraordinary trial. You spent a lot of money to not make money. That's just an anathema nowadays. But you did that because. I'm sorry, I'll use the word again the ethic of the songs. You didn't want them cheapened, you didn't want them used in a commercial way. Explain to someone who may be sitting in the audience thinking, I will literally do anything to be a celebrity, anything, why that was important to you not to take $15 million for a car commercial. That's well, right.
0: No, it was. It put me on the spot. I thought it was $75,000.
1: No, no, he's 15? talking it recently. All oh,
2: recently, yeah. No, the uh, the yeah. latest one, yeah.
1: Um, Francis Coppola used the end in Apocalypse Now, a film that's probably a work of art. I would rather have our songs be the soundtrack for that than the soundtrack for Deodorant.
0: I'm sorry, this is you know, it's it fantastic. Oh, yeah. Give it up.
2: Um, Tom, the most... Can I say something, Jim? Sure.
0: That's one of the things that really inspired me to, to, to take on this project, because I felt that. You know, it's, I, I knew that even as a kid, uh, that this, this was not music that was generated simply to, to, to make money. And I think it did make money. That's the greatest irony. It did make money, but it wasn't consciously, you know, designed for that. Uh, as I mentioned to you, I think their first album, had two tracks on it that were over seven minutes long for, the ver- for, their, for their debut album. Yeah. What, what debut group today would, would take a risk like that? You know, uh, At that time, it was a huge risk. Most songs on the radio were two to three, three minutes long, I right. believe, right?
1: Hey, it exactly uh, makes me want to ask you to say something about the sound. There's a fifth door sitting in the front row.
2: Yes, there is. And a, and a is. sixth. yeah. There, there is something about the sound. Like I earlier, I said it looked like that film was shot yesterday. You put a Doors song on today. It sounds like it was recorded yesterday, and I, would love to find out how that happened. Should we? Uh would you, ladies and gentlemen, Bruce uh, yeah, Botnick?
1: Yeah, this is our longtime recording engineer. And come on up here and sit down, uh, Bruce. Um, Uh, orchestrated the sound for the soundtrack to go with this film. I was really lucky that I sent Johnny Depp an email asking is it possible you might read a couple of Jim's poems that are not in this movie? And he said yes. And uh, Bruce put it all together and and it's a magical soundtrack to match Tom's magical film. So
2: here's a man with great ears Baby. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. You were the Doors uh, engineer for every album. Right. And then uh, they go to do LA Woman. Paul Rothschild says, I've had it. I've had enough. So you have to step up to the producer's chair. And in the movie.
3: I didn't step, I ran.
2: You ran, yeah. Head first. But you did one of the wisest things I think anybody could have done. You told them, and I quote, just play. Right. Explain that to everybody.
3: Well, the five previous studio albums, plus the live albums, it had been basically very much orchestrated. And uh, there was a level of frustration for both Paul and for the band, uh, which showed itself in a rehearsal, actually the first recording date at Sunset Sound for LA Woman. And uh, Paul realized we had, he had run out of gas. So the guys, we got together uh, and talked about it. And I said, you know, the best thing that you guys can do, you know what to do, just play. And, and it, what it did, it freed all of us up. It was like getting out of school and going for summer vacation and just having fun.
2: Well, it was definitely the right advice. And they were. this is a band that was used to being able to play because they're one of the greatest improv bands on the planet in... Uh, The other night I played a thing called Black Train Song on the radio, 12 minutes uh, of a blues jam And you can hear how these guys really work together and off each other And so to be able to capture that in the studio is pretty amazing.
3: Well the thing that that Paul and I Wanted to do was to be invisible Uh, Because they were such great performers and especially like in the first album they came in the studio And we'd record in the daytime, then they'd go to the whiskey and play a set at night and come back. So they were performing band. There was no reason to try and, quote-unquote, produce it, to rearrange it. Maybe some things needed to be edited or tightened, or we found uh, we were inspired to do a little overdub or something like that. But basically, it was always with, on all the albums, as much as possible, to capture the performance, because that's what it's all about. And if they're performing well, they're speaking to the audience who are listening.
2: And how do you explain the fact that The Doors' songs sound so good today? I mean, if you listen to some of my you know, very favorite bands, or you listen to certain Jefferson Airplane tunes, they sound like they were recorded in 1969. Um, but not The Doors. Oh, how, how did that happen? Um,
3: just the way I heard it. And uh, again, it was back to capturing the performance and not trying to be be the performance. Here, I'll, uh, I'll answer for you, Okay, Bruce. thank you. Save me. <laughs> As
1: each new technology came along, digital or whatever, I mean, Bruce is on the cutting edge of all this stuff, and so he kept us ahead of the curve. And and I would say that Bruce and Paul taught us how to make records, but after many records, Paul went on to uh, do Janis. actually. James right? Joplin? Now he's... Uh, He's producing in that big studio in the sky. With the all-star bit, dead man. Yeah, yeah. Although it's, it's only analog up there. That's true. <laughs> but so Bruce comes along with L.A. Woman and says, you guys know how to make records. Let's just do a few takes. And, and, and there's so much energy and passion and, and the hell with the mistakes. Right. Thank you. And get, you're welcome.
2: That must have felt good to be able to do that again. Oh. oh.
1: He said, you know, I mean, I used to... 45 minutes to get a drum sound or so, and uh, what, I, 15, 20 minutes with you on that.
3: If, said, you know what to do. You know. Yeah, said, just oh, get great. it. Well, if the, especially in LA Woman, the object was to go in the room. and We borrowed equipment from Electra Records, which was studio across the street, uh, set it up in the rehearsal hall, and uh, just put the mics up and worried about the sound later and just said, go. Jim was in the bathroom. We had bathroom echo. Singing with with his microphone that he used on tour. But the great thing about it, and it goes back to what you were saying before, you know, Tom, when he developed the movie and wrote the script and figured out the songs, you know, how things were going to work, luckily we had the material, we had taken care of it, we were able to go back, and even I was impressed at how well the sound had survived and how... Easy it was to make it sound really good for today's listening environment.
2: It's amazing. It really is amazing. Tom, let me uh, get back to you and ask you this question. What was the most surprising fact you learned about the Doors while doing the movie?
0: Well, I'm going to say two things, uh, Jim. The first was, uh, and and, you know, to to hardcore Doors fans, this is going to sound really sophomoric but I'm going to say it because of something Robbie Krieger said to me. Uh, Robbie came up to me about a year ago, and he had seen the film and said, Tom, I just want to thank you. you know? I said, for what? He said, for letting people know that I wrote Light My Fire. Ah. Now, he didn't say it in an egotistical way. He didn't say it like, you know, I, I, you know for years I've been f- bugged about this. He just thanked me, and it was such an um, emotional moment for me that I realized that I had made the right choice in in presenting that as as if that was important information because it was important information for me. I learned that. I learned that on the soft parade, you know, Robbie was contributing tremendously to the the songs. And that that Jim was very, I guess, you know, magnanimous about it and said, yeah, and he was always encouraging uh, to Robbie. Robbie said to me that, that that Jim gave him some advice once he said you know always write about universal themes
2: you know and I also love the fact that in the movie uh, they record LA Woman and the record company wants to release Lover Madly the song he wrote Robbie which is a a Robbie Krieger song and Robbie says no it's too commercial now I thought that was very cool I thought so too
1: yeah uh the actually, uh, Jim said to all of us in rehearsal, uh, go home and write a song tonight and use universal imagery, earth, air, fire, water. And the next day, Robbie comes back with light my fire.
2: <laughs> and Jim was, uh, there was no problem about, I mean, he, if he's encouraging the other members to write, it wasn't like, well, hey, pal, I'm the writer and I'm the poet, and forget it. It was quite the opposite, wasn't it? He wanted it as a band four musketeers.
1: Yeah, primarily coming from the fact that he could not play one chord on any instrument, but he had all these words and he actually had melodies. He said he he re, he made up melodies so he could remember the words, but it was all a cappella. Yeah. So he said, how do you write songs? So you know we did it all together.
0: Just and to I'm sorry Jim I wanted to just finish the second thing that I blew my mind. Sure. Was that how, in a, And I mean this in a positive way, but how dependent Jim was on Ray, Robbie, and John. And that without them with him, I, I think that he may, may not have felt as comfortable going as far as he did when he did. Because he always knew these guys were with him. They, they, they knew him. They, they knew how to pick up when he, when he would go in a different direction. They knew how to, you know, to keep it all going. And uh, that, was a, that was a pretty powerful thing to, to learn.
2: Well, there's a story, and I hope it's true, of uh, The Doors are going to play a a gig. And apparently the person who was the MC went out and said, Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Morrison and The Doors. And Jim and The Doors didn't come out. Jim refused to come out. And he got the guy, is this correct, you want to tell this? So he gets the guy by the collar and he drags him back and he says, Hey pal, the name of the band is The Doors go back out and announce it. And he made him walk out there and announce it. Not Jim Morris, it's The Doors. Which I, I thought was, uh, was wonderful, yeah. Also the fact, that you brought this up, there are only four people on planet Earth that were ever born, ever lived, are living now, that could be in that band. You remove one of those people, right. and it's a different entity. It right. doesn't work.
0: Right.
2: Um, John, there are several scenes in the film where we see the chaos that happened later on at some of the Doors concerts um, I want you to describe for people what you were feeling when the wheels came off the cart during one of your shows
1: how did I survive that I don't know I, uh, the wheels came off the cart I well,
2: know it's a metaphor but. it is a metaphor it's universal themes think of that that way John
1: uh, you know, I mean, I was worried primarily about Jim, not necessarily about... Well, I was, of course, disturbed by the the quality of the band was incredible live, and, and it deteriorated with Jim's self-destruction, and that was painful. But, oh, God, this guy, we, d- we didn't have substance abuse clinics. We didn't know he had a disease called alcoholism, and so... I just knew that uh, there's an elephant in the room. That it's uh, our buddy here is going down, and that's what was my uh, crucifix. But I had found my path in music, and I, you know, didn't want to give that up at all. Right. So you see, in the film, I throw my sticks down and I, I quit, and then the next day I come back. You know, right. how could I give this up?
2: But. It, it, during uh, they show a couple of of the concerts where the crowd just gets out of hand. Jim is egging them on, and and the police actually drag him off stage. Uh, you have to leave. Robbie has to leave. Ray apparently doesn't get the message because he keeps playing. But uh, did you feel in physical danger? Were you worried about? I mean, what was that?
1: Yeah, a little bit. I. You know, I'm on a drum riser right kind of behind Jim's head, and so if there's a bullet coming, shh. Oh, but anyway, haven't we had enough blah-blah for the day? Are we almost done? We're
2: almost done. <laughs> so now that we had that comment, let me ask you this question, Tom. Uh, were they easy, were, was uh, John and Ray and Robbie, were they easy to work with, or did you have to spend most of your time catering to their rock star demands?
0: Uh, that's a good question, Jim. Um, listen.
2: Yeah, I said it.
0: Yeah, I said it. This, I want to make one thing, you know, clear. This is not a movie by the Doors. It's a movie about the Doors. Now, uh, out of, of course, respect for all of them, I, you know, wanted to show them the film at different stages. And the first hurdle was. Uh, it wasn't really a hurdle. I think the first big surprise, uh, and it was expressed most emphatically by Ray was that uh, I didn't want to have The Doors now talking about what it was like being in The Doors. And Ray flipped out. He said, how can you have a film about The Doors without The Doors talking about The Doors? Um, um, And then he saw. That took
2: about 20 minutes to get that. Well,
0: yeah, uh, 25. uh, I'm still hearing about it. No, no, he, w- once, once he saw the first 15 or 20 minutes and saw, because you know, the film developed over time. It, it wasn't just instantaneous. It took, it took two years to find the shape of this movie. Uh, so they, they all saw different forms of it and all were extremely, uh, you know, informative in terms of, you know what, this isn't really clear. This is what happened. What you're saying here, you know, it didn't quite happen that way. Um, so there was a couple of things in which I said thank you, but no thank you. Um, John may tell you about that later over a beer or something. But um, I, I feel that uh, 99% of what they saw, they appreciated.
2: Yeah. So. One of the things, and then we'll let you take your nap. I'll um, <laughs> pay for that later. Not old yet. Yeah. Um, one of the things I was most impressed with and I thought this was probably difficult to do, but you did it, was you captured, there's a a real gentle side to the music, Indian Summer, um, uh, Your Lost Little Girl. Crystal Ship. Crystal Ship. Very gentle and introspective stuff. But there's also a danger and unpredictability inherent in the doors, the music, the whole uh, you know, ethic around it. Sorry about using that word again. The ethos around it, uh, as well as the band itself. Why do you think this is such a big part of the Doors story, John? That oh,
1: I wasn't listening.
2: <laughs> nodded off, did you? Uh, that danger <laughs> and unpredictability. That That was very, and still is, I think, very attractive to people. It's not like a band that... You're really going to play for your parents, you know. Even today, it's just there's something rather dangerous about this band.
1: I come from a jazz background, which uh, is uh, largely uh, relies on improvisation, which is dangerous. You kind of you follow the chord structure, but you can stretch out, and you know who knows where you're going to go, and. that's what was exciting and there were sections where we'd vamp and jim would do any poem he felt like doing and 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 then we would try and reel him back in and go on with the song Uh, it was just part of our chemistry
2: really quickly before we wind up i want to tell this one story the only time i got to see them live was in long beach they just released morrison hotel and these guys did a medley and, and now, I, I know this music well. I play it every night, I segue this music. They did a medley, and they went through four songs, and I couldn't tell that they changed until Jim started to sing, and the lyric was different. They were that tight, I will always remember that. That's how good these guys were. Um,
0: well, the other thing, Jim, I was going to say, you know, these, these guys were making music with, with themes and with, with, with lyrics and ideas that were not your normal pop songs. Uh, You know, and and the performance of that was was done with a commitment, you know, a a willingness to go into chaos, not just improvisation, because, you know, you can improvise and it can be very comfortable, right? right? This kind of improvisation was into uncharted waters where anything could happen, and uh, that's, I think, part of what the appeal of of the band is, you know, still.
1: What have they done to the earth? Ravaged and ripped her and bit her, stuck her with knives in the side of the don and tied her with fences and dragged her down. I hear a very gentle sound.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Amen. How did you get, before we get out of here, how did you get that sound effect on horse latitudes? What did you do for that?
3: Oh my God. Nice, music. Good one, thank you. Uh, Everybody thinks that's the ocean. It is not the ocean. It was um, tape hiss played into an echo chamber that was played by hand slowly. That's how we used, I guess, going back, that's how electronic music was originally done, with tape loops and things like that. And that's how it was done.
2: Wow, it's very effective and very, very ethereal. Last question. And I want to ask each of you this. We'll start with John. All right, let's start with Tom. You, a man. You know, it's just like pulling teeth at this guy. <laughs> Doing my best. Tom, what do you hope the audience will come away with? What's the one thing you hope that they get from seeing when you are strange?
0: You know, I want to answer that question with hopefully not sounding uh, uh, moralistic or, or pompous or, or anything. But, but I happen to believe that there are very tr- few things in life that are, that are true and, and, and honest. And uh, I would hope that people would look at this film and say, wow, you know what? That is an honest
2: and a truthful view of this band. Very good. Very good. And I think that you captured that. Bruce, what would you say?
3: Uh, that they discover... We. We. we That they owe us? Okay. that Bruce, the, You're the fifth door. Oh, the fifth door. Okay. That the people, when they're watching this film, what they get out of it is that they especially people that have never been into the Doors, that they come. And uh, they're really struck by the depth of the, of the poetry and uh, the energy and the truthfulness behind what they were doing.
2: Very well said. Good luck following that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, following not, me. it's not
1: we. It's you guys looking at this film. Yeah. Oh, I just have one word, I guess. Integrity. Thanks.
2: Amen. Amen.
1: It's been a pressure.
2: Um, When You're Strange will be in theaters Friday, April the the 9th. I urge you to see this extraordinary documentary, The Doors. A big round of applause for John Densmore, Bruce Botnick, Tom Tuchillo, and Jack Holtzman.